I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Indeed. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Oh, yeah. This week, The Little White Horse by Elizabeth Googe. <laughs> Rude horse noise. I hope we're pronouncing her name correctly. This episode has been a request from many different listeners. Um, most notably, both Hannah and Clarissa sent amazing emails in which they mentioned reasons why they love this book. And we're going to excerpt those later on. Yeah, they're really they're just fun so emails. Fun. We can't not quote from them. As always, we love your emails so much. Even if it takes me sometimes two months or more <laughs> to reply, I love receiving them. We love reading them. Please continue sending them. Dragon Babies Podcast at gmail.com. They literally, every time I read one, it's a bright spot in my day. This is a book that we somehow missed as children. I'm not sure how, because I think this would have been like my favorite book if yeah. it had come to me at yeah. the appropriate age. It's like um, Redwall with humans, kind of. Yeah, what I kept thinking of it as was a fantasy version of Heidi, which I was obsessed oh, with, where it's like yeah. all about the hills and the flowers and the cheese and the bread and, and the cheese, the glory of God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did, you know, read this for the first time for this episode, but we're still going to uh, discuss how the publisher chose to package and promote the book and the editions that we read. The cover of the ebook that's available is a lot. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. It's weird. It's a photo collage mixed with some unicorn art that I'm not really sure how to characterize exactly. And there's some special eyes. There are a, a child's wide green eyes staring off into the night. Superimposed over that is a moon and a castle. And then in the foreground is a big sparkling font that says the little white horse um, with just a very obvious unicorn emblazoned across the cover. I thought this book was going to be way more about unicorns based on this cover, but I think it's just a device to get little girls mainly to pick it up. It it doesn't look like the covers for the Bruce Coville ones that I had, but it reminds me of the books, um, the Unicorn Chronicles, mm. like it, it, this looks like it should be a cover, a modern cover for one of those books, mm-hmm. not this like beautiful fairy tale about like forties or no it, Victorian right. England. It's it was set, written in the forties. Yeah. It was written in 1946. It was set in 1842. Mm, so a um, hundred years so, earlier. Yeah. Even, even older. Um, yeah. It feels very modern which is strange because this book is, as you said, set now 200 years ago yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and was even 100 years before the time of writing. Um, and there is an interesting mishmash of styles and tones going on. Um, yeah. There's also a very large quote that just says, I absolutely adored the little white horse, J.K. Rowling. Um so that hasn't aged well. <laughs> I know. When I saw that, I was like, oi. <laughs> I saw um, that there were, that was mentioned often in pieces about this book. I think that it has, yeah, become a big marketing ploy in that she has said many times that if there was an obvious influence for the Harry Potter books, it was this book. 
Um, and she also specifically mentioned the food <laughs> as part of the reason. And it made her want to always say what it was that people were eating. Mm. Um, this book does not leave any meals behind. No. We get the full details of literally every single thing every character eats. And I'm not mad. No, no, because <laughs> very the, happy. the the food was so... Um, scrumptious yeah like i the whole book is delicious so the food descriptions are very well suited every scene felt like i was playing one of those hidden picture games where there's just so much just incredible detail throughout and it is rich and luxurious and you just want to soak it all up I it was uh i know to say i say this about once an episode but it was a little uh (laughs) tolkienian Madeline, would you like to, well, I, I guess I didn't really summarize this cover, but um, I question it. <laughs> there is a, there is a folio society edition that is no surprise, unbelievably gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, it is illustrated by Deborah McFarlane and I much prefer this cover. I'll put links to it, um, a link to this as well as the ebook cover on our website dragonbabiespodcast.com so you can all see the comparison um the illustrations in the folio edition are super colorful and have a wonderful kind of timelessness to them Mm. and for a book that is filled with so much color and detail that it just makes much more sense to have this kind of artistic representation rather than this weird photo collage yeah i mean it it made me want to draw so much uh reading this book because everything is just so drawable there's so much detail begs for the quill and parchment if you will yeah i don't have a quill Madeline, would you like to give us a plot summary for those who haven't read the book in a while or are visiting it for the first time? Indeed. Spoilers ahead. This book takes place in the 1840s, as Grace has said. Um, So it's Victorian times, and uh, the main character is a Merriweather, Maria Merriweather, and... uh, when the book first starts out, she is traveling to the estate of an older cousin. Um, Cause everyone's a cousin. Of this oh book. yeah. Everyone's a cousin. Um, because both of her parents have passed. Her mother passed when she was quite young and her father, uh, it, he was always off in a war somewhere. And it sounds like that finally took him out. And then upon her father's death, she found out that uh, all of his uh, holdings were due to his creditors. So it's a it's a grenade respawn at the start of this book. We're starting out with a pretty fresh slate for Maria Merriweather and Miss Heliotrope, uh, who is her caretaker. She's her nanny. She's been with Maria since she was very young. And um, it turns out she actually ties into the story later on as well. Uh, but at the beginning, we're just introduced to them. She's she's and been also to Wiggins, to Wiggins, as who well. I thought was a man at first. I thought Wiggins was a cat, um, <laughs> but uh, Wiggins, it's I a little am, closer than where I was. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a, a gym coach uh, in uh, high school high school yeah named coach wiggins and everybody loved him and they would like do w with their hands and everyone would be like wiggins (laughs) he was he was one of the like fun gym teachers maria miss heliotrope and wiggins who is a king charles spaniel and we'll talk more about him when we get to talking about animals animals, just like in this book 
They uh, are traveling to the country estate of her cousin, and her cousin is uh, Meriwether... Sir Benjamin? Benjamin uh, Meriwether. Um, for some reason, I wanted to say Gary. <laughs> I don't think his name is Gary. Sir Gary! <laughs> Gary. Um, he lives in the traditional heritage Meriwether estate that Maria finds out is going to be hers after she arrives because she is the heir, heiress Meriwether. Um, this, the estate grounds are beautiful. The town nearby is beautiful. Um, it's basically a stone castle that's given to us. It's like a small castle, mm-hmm. uh, that is given to us in just like I want to make heartbreaking a, detail, right? I want to yeah. make a clay model of the castle. We could and the gardens, yeah. Uh, truly, the entire valley, yeah. It's it's just Moon so Acre. well uh, described and embellished. Um, so yeah, Moonacre and Maria goes when they get there. She hops up to her tower room. There's a little tiny door that only fits her. She's 13 and she's very small. Uh, and she goes in and it's just like this overwhelming sense of magic, uh, basically. Like she feels like it's there for her. And it is because gently through it doesn't happen all at once. So I'm just going to tell you about it now in, instead of butchering how it comes up in the story. There is basically a curse. It's a hereditary curse on this family uh, because the original predecessor who was Rolf Merriweather um he uh, fought with his uh, his neighbor it's kind of a long story do I should I talk about no, it? there's there's just been tensions between two yeah. families that yeah. have owned property in yes. the valley and it ended up as a supernatural style curse with Jesus um, in around the edges. The the fusion of paganism and Christianity in this book is wild. And it's actually why I didn't mind the religious stuff Mm -hmm. because it was so like natural world and beauty focused. It was basically all of the best parts of Christianity about like enjoying the love of your God Mm -hmm. and celebrating that and being good to each other. And it was also like inherently anti-capitalist. Yes. Like instead of profiting off of the land, it should be given to God for the people to then enjoy. For the common good. Exactly. And it's not given to God and then no one touches it. It's Mm -hmm. given to God and then the kids get to go and play there right. and everyone gets to spend time there and it's like this shared space mm-hmm. instead of being the Meriwether Shepherd Hill. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's actually and I really enjoy that because the first time somebody started talking about God, I was like, oh no. <laughs> when was this book written? Oh no. <laughs> The, when we got to the the chapter of going to church, I was like, I don't know if Madeline stay with me through this. I, I did. I'll be honest. I did kind of glaze through that chapter where I was like, yeah, I don't need to know any of this church stuff. I've done this. But again, from from my skimming, I did gather that it, it was a very beautiful ceremony. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was a very. Um, you know, not a fire and brimstone thing, yeah. not a feel bad for sinning thing. The the parson. I like that the parson was an atheist too before he became a parson. So I feel like they're get, they're getting something a little extra in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yes. And okay, so I'll try to get back on my track now. Maria, she explores the town. She meets some of its residents. She meets Robin, who is the uh, son of Mrs. Loveday, Ms. Loveday. Ms. Loveday. Well, she was married. Yeah, she's a... But that's her name, right? Widow now. Loveday Manette is like her um, nickname from her family. So I don't think we even know her married name. Okay, so she meets Robin. Like, she starts having some supernatural-type things occur, including meeting, quote-unquote, Robin, because he has been a fixture in her dreams, and he used to play with her, like, Mm -hmm. at the square in London growing up. So Miss Heliotrope thought that he was... um, an imaginary, An imaginary friend. friend, yeah. Uh, and she finds out he's real and he's basically just been visiting her because their fates are tied together, which isn't really explained, but that's what I gathered. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she finds out that, you know, basically over time she's finding out more and more about this curse. She's meeting different people in the town. She's meeting different people at the manor, including the cook, um, whose name is uh, Scarlet um, Rump or something. Marmaduke Scarlet. Not Mushroom. Not Mushroom. It's <laughs> a great name. Um, and uh, he <laughs> hates women. He came out of the gate so incredibly strong during this book that up until now, he is like such a bizarre character. It. This book does have weird stuff to say about gender roles. Not, I don't think it was like... But it's like like equally damning of both women and men. Right. That's the thing. And I feel like the narration is making fun of each of them for feeling like they're above one another. That's what I was kind of wondering, because it doesn't feel like an Adam and Eve story where it's like, you know, they're The women are responsible for the downfall. Yeah. It it was more of just like, these are the stereotypical things that... uh, we think of as being man problems and being woman problems and you've got to knock that off or you'll never be happy. <laughs> I mean, my first note was men are filthy agents of chaos. Yeah. <laughs> They're just so thoroughly characterized as complete no, totally. disasters. And anytime there's anything nice in the book, um, Maria's like, oh, well, there must have been a woman here. Exactly. It's um, it's so weird and funny and I still don't even totally like yeah I I think you're probably right I think it's a bit of a send-up and then Marmaduke Scarlet is saying don't gossip don't ask too many questions don't be curious and yet he throughout the book is shown listening at keyholes and door cracks and then spreading the information that he finds yeah isn't that wild I mean it's just hypocrisy on its face to the extent that it feels like a joke but also Marmaduke Scarlet is a bizarre character in every way he's so strange the only one that isn't like paired up um that exists seemingly like out of space and time has no other connections in the book he he seems almost like a magical creature like she calls him a dwarf which I did at first I was I was confused. I was like, wait, does she mean that he is small Mm -hmm. or does she mean that he is a A fantasy dwarf, fantasy type dwarf, which is a different 
race or a different species from human. <laughs> they also talk about him having pointed ears at one point. Um, oh, so yeah, okay. it's hard to so tell. So he is supposed to be non-human maybe. I don't know. Okay. I have no idea. Yeah. No, the book is full of stuff like that. It's like the movie with Ewan McGregor, uh, Big Fish. <laughs> A blend of fantasy and reality, a sort of um, magical realism. (laughs) What I call big fish. The big fishitude of it all. Um, Okay, so I'm sorry. Please continue your summary. Uh, I think we were just saying that throughout the book, there are interesting tensions between being a woman and being a man. And just like existing also. Yep. And whether you're human or not. Yeah. Um, Okay. The it's a nebulous sort of fantasy. Yes. But pervasive. Yeah, no, definitely. If The whole thing felt very magical. We talked about how there's two feuding families. The other side of the feuding family is the... Co- Coq de Noir. Okay, thank you for the French. <laughs> and he... Um, Black crow. Black cock. Yeah, he lives in the woods <laughs> with his men. <laughs> his 12 like relatives yeah, and they just like make trouble they they trap animals they're not supposed to trap and they steal people's they're basically like i thought of them like a band of deserters especially yeah. in witcher like that's how i pictured them of yeah. just like in the game witcher 3 uh where there's just kind of men hanging out at a campsite and it's full of their plunder that they've taken from the mm. nearby village and there, it is kind of uncertain for some of the book of whether they are real or yeah. some sort of invented yeah. force that's like responsible for all the mischief and problems in the valley. Um, yeah. And in the end, I think there's also a big question of whether they were actually, quote unquote, wicked or not, right. or whether the Merryweathers were wicked. There's definitely wickedness on both sides and i think there's just more of an exploration of the theme of everyone coming together and being good to each other rather yeah. than there being good guys and bad guys right yeah and uh, the uh, she goes to talk to the Coq de Noir. Coq de Noir, um, who tells her, kind of as an aside, but he he means it. He's like, look, the only thing that you could do to make me trust you and stop stealing rabbits and terrorizing people and be chill again and, like, you know, just just be cool. That's the only thing that I will accept is if you give me the pearls that your ancestor wife who was my ancestor <laughs> yeah they're they're related to yeah um they have common ancestors. died with like the idea is that supposedly maria's ancestor killed his ancestor but maria finds out that's not the truth she finds the pearls inside in the well, well where, <laughs> where there is, is delicious sounding butter and cream being capped because it's cool there. And she just like sticks her little arm back in there. Wild. Cannot imagine sticking my arm into a well, dark Marmaduke hole. Well, Scarlet asked her to get the butter. So she had yeah, some. Yeah, but then she went past there and was like, spiders, bite me. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't actually say that. That's what I thought. I was like, well... <laughs> Maria isn't scared of spiders. Miss Heliotrope is scared of spiders. Yeah, yeah. If you'll remember. That's true. Um, 
There's also, let me just interrupt really quickly no and add that there is a history of there being sun Merryweathers and moon Merryweathers. Yes. And the women tend to be of the moon persuasion and the men are of the sun. And when the a two come, pers- persuasion. <laughs> a moonish persuasion. Um, and when the two come together, they fulfill the Merryweather creed which is the uh, it's it's something like the pure in spirit and the brave in soul the heart ethos (laughs) (laughs) yeah so anyways her in her older cousin benjamin is a day Mm -hmm. meriwether and Mm -hmm. she's a knight so he that's why he told her like we'll get along splendidly uh, the the credo I just found it is the brave soul and the pure spirit shall with a merry and loving heart inherit the kingdom together. Okay, okay, it's better than what we came up with. Okay, Maria figures out that Love Day and uh, her cousin Benjamin were supposed to be married once upon a time. That Love Day is his uh, uh, opposite in his particular drama, which was playing out as part of the curse, which was that they were perfect together, but then they fought about and flowers. They separated. Yeah. And it about was about something geraniums. really silly, which was because Benjamin's mom hated pink. And Who sounded like an unpleasant. Yeah. Person. She sounded terrible. Um, and uh, love day adored pink, especially geraniums. All right. Now let's do a swippy swap. Grace. <laughs> I'm going to take over the end of the summary as Madeline has requested. Um, So at this point, Maria has really figured out all the different pieces and she just has one last thing to do to bring everything to a wedding filled conclusion. Um, She has found her her pearls, her ancestors pearls in the well. Oh, you're just going to talk about the picnic. No. She brings them to the Monsieur de Noir Mm -hmm. and tries to tell him, okay, you know now because you had chased me earlier and you found the hermitage where your ancestor had lived. He wasn't killed. He was just hiding away. Then he rode his boat into the sunset and the boat is on the beach. Mm -hmm. And Monsieur de Noir says, well, how could the boat be on the beach if he rode off into the sunset? And she says, the white horses that live in the waves that bring the sunrise every day carried it back to the beach for him. And he's he's like, like, that's a really (laughs) lovely piece of pros but that's not gonna be good enough for me to stop not gonna fly being a poacher so she convinces him to come into the woods with her and says that she'll show him the little white horse the titular little white horse Mm -hmm. who pops up three times total it's like some kind of unicorn angel yeah a unicorn spirit um whose brethren sisters brothers kin are the horses that draw in the sunrise wave on the beach in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had just seen the horse who helped guide her back toward the castle in the dark when she was afraid. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, okay, hopefully that horse shows up again. And she brings Monsieur de Noir out into the forest and they walk and walk and the sun is coming up and he's like, this is terrifying and I just want to go home. Just stay away from me. But our promise has not been fulfilled. And then the sun rises and the row of white horses comes galloping out of the sea and over them and through the forest, bringing the sun with them. And he's like, okay, you're good. We're good. We are all going to be friendly from now on. And I will come to your castle tomorrow. Yes. And the next day, 
Um, Maria sets up a very carefully scheduled tea with the help of Marmaduke Scarlet so that different long lost lovers arrive at the appropriate times to encounter one another. Yeah, it is the, <laughs> it, it was a little Diana Wynne Jones, how perfectly all of the pieces click together at the garden sure. party. And she brings out the pink geraniums from Marmaduke Scarlet's bedroom, little secret tunnel. Yeah, because it turns out he like, took a bunch of them and put them in his room. He couldn't abide waste, even yes. though he too hates pink. And he hates women. feminine. Yeah. Um, and Miss Heliotrope and the old Parson are revealed to have been long separated lovers <laughs> who were together in their Surprise! Youth, um, which Maria figured out by seeing each of their little books of verse and seeing each other's names in them. Yeah. And so they re... What's the word I'm looking for? Um... They renew reacquainted. Their, they get reacquainted in the garden. Um, Love Day shows up and she's beautiful. And Benjamin is like, please, I'm so sorry. This was so dumb. I'm stupid. And then the two of them renew their affections for one another. And then the book ends with a series of weddings. So Benjamin and Loveday get married, Miss Heliotrope and the old parson get married. And then, most disconcertingly, Maria and Robin wed at the age of 14. I'm assuming that it's a sort of like proxy marriage where they're not going to be married in real life until they like maybe hit at least 16, if not 18. (laughs) Because specifically, I was impressed earlier because this is the kind of thing that unfortunately I can't not pay very close attention yeah. to. But Loveday says that when she met Benjamin, she was 10 and he was 25. And I was like, wee you, wee you, alarm they bells. They got married when he was quote unquote over 30. Over 30. So I'm assuming that means that she was 18. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so I was hoping that Maria and Robin would also at least wait till the you know advanced age of 18 to yeah. wed. But uh, we don't know. We don't know about that. They yeah. do go on to have a long and happy marriage and they have many children. And Maria inherits the estate, mm-hmm. which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, and is, you know, said to be then essentially the, the lady of the valley. Right, yeah. She becomes um, in charge. So... It, it all works out in the end. And the ending of the book, like the last paragraph, is so beautiful. And mm. it is about Maria wishing she could see the little white horse again, yeah. but knowing that she will on the day that she dies and the horse yeah. will take her on. Yeah. So, um, summary completed. Thank you. <laughs> So old and new impressions. We did not read this one young, although like I mentioned earlier, um, I would have been very fixated on this book. Yeah, it's so tasty. I saw a tour piece uh, written by Mari Ness that we'll link to on our website um, that's titled Fairy Tale as Comfort, The Little Mm. White Horse. And I tried to do a little research to see whether Elizabeth Gooch had ever said um, her reasons for writing this or anything like that. But it was written during World War II. Um, okay. And- I wondered when she worked on this because it's it got published right after World War II. So I was like, well, she could have written it earlier and then been like, well, I don't want to publish it during this war. Yeah. For someone living in England during World War II, I can imagine creating especially the sumptuous feasts. 
like the food uh, I felt was yeah. a direct reaction during to the time of Victory Gardens, yeah. um, which uh, was way, way tougher in uh, the UK than well, they were getting bombed. in the United States. Yeah. And I did find a quote from Elizabeth Googe that said, as this world becomes increasingly ugly, callous, and materialistic, it needs to be reminded that the old fairy stories are rooted in truth, that imagination is of value, that happy endings do in fact occur, and that the blue spring mist that makes an ugly street look beautiful is just as real a thing as the street itself. Hmm. And that's kind of a perfect thesis for what she does in this book, um, because all of the most powerful forces are those of nature. They're those of wanting to do good, wanting to help and support other people and wanting to come together as a community. Mm. Um, And so I think... I already mentioned this, but although the book at first seems like it's creating very specific bad guys, like they even call uh, Monsieur de Noir and his brethren them with a capital T. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, It it does in the end feel like it's actually just the old hurt and pain that is the badness. And once that can be rooted out, Mm. everyone can live in harmony. Um, I did... I was concerned. I do feel like there is some racially coded language yes. um, yeah. surrounding the uh, surrounding them. Um, they, a lot. they sound like stereotypical, um, like Middle Eastern people. Bit, like it reminded me of Aladdin a little bit where all of the, the scary people are the ones who look less white. <laughs> well, yeah, they use black and dark again and again yeah. to characterize them. Yeah. Um, and the way that they're discussed is not something that I was comfortable or cool with. Um, and, you know, that is ratified a little bit in the end because it's shown like, hey, they're not bad people. Right, yeah, everyone um, gets happy at the end. But I still do think there's definitely problematic language. Um, so something to watch out for if mm-hmm. you're rereading it. Yeah, and I mean, Megan Grace, when we saw when this was from, at first we were like, oh, geez, I, like, I hope this isn't like you know, like aged yeah. terribly. There's a lot of super offensive stuff in here, but it makes sense because so many people recommended this to us that although there is definitely some, um, it is, uh, at least minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not, I don't know. The, the book was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I guess I could just say. No, no, <laughs> I, I think. And, and to that point, what we were talking about with there being, um, Like, basically everyone is being treated in the same way in terms of the stereotypes, specifically about the different genders. Right. Um, And that the men who are accusing the women of being silly or overly curious are exhibiting the exact same traits. Right. Um, And then the women see the men as, like, disgusting and hopeless. (laughs) Yes. I think that's probably the way to put it. Um, it's it. It was really interesting. Yeah. I was surprised by how roundly both genders were kind of served Just up. So down, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, and this was written a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Now, almost a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, so uh, there were there were some interesting surprises. Yeah, for sure. In this yeah. book. No, it was definitely not. 
I, I was a little worried that it was going to be preachy. Um, and like, definitely there's a very clear message, but ultimately the message is a very pure one. Mm-hmm. Be good, mm-hmm. treat each other well, don't fight over stupid stuff, like yeah. don't squash your natural gifts, you know. Right, yeah. Find your strengths and play to them. Yeah, and yeah. Use them to support others. Mm-hmm. Well, and I like the message that evil doesn't have to be this pervasive um force that can't leave a person's right. heart yeah uh, their soul i should say right it's very a- soul focused yeah which we'll talk about in a minute um and i i think you know of course it's very simplistic to say like in the end everyone was perfectly happy and everything was wonderful like right. the people living in the valley are still the serfs of the right. merry weathers yeah um, there still is this like essentially a feudal system in place which That's i have problems right. with That's they have their so own lockbox pew in the church so they don't have to like commingle with the other mm-hmm. villagers but everyone marries outside their class at the end also and the whole thing was that she had to marry outside of her class to break the curse right exactly so yeah no i mean there's interesting I, commentary. I'm I, not totally sure what's going on, but like it's different. I did. I text Grace while I, when I was almost done with this saying like, okay, I think that for its time, this was incredibly progressive. Yeah. And to us now, when we live in a more progressive time and, you know, no matter what's going on, like as a baseline, we're at a much more progressive time and place, especially in the United States than Victorian England yeah like no question about that so I wonder if just a lot of that has been lost because it's no longer applicable or like the ways that um, progress has played out are not the same ways that people imagined back you know in the Mm -hmm. 40s Mm -hmm. or like I wonder if there's some of that going on because it is ultimately kind of confusing (laughs) (laughs) but but no one really has issues with the fact that folks are marrying outside of their class. Yeah. I wonder um, if that's supposed to be a bigger point than it came across to mm-hmm. us because I we, wonder about that. Yeah. Too. Well, and throughout the book, everyone is really um, coming together in different spaces. Mm-hmm. And like, this is one reason why the different pew box felt weird to me at the church mm-hmm. um, because the rest of the time Maria is, fully living with the other kids that are in the village like she goes to their common space and plays with them which is the church and then later the hill Um, but then she's also above them in her in terms of her family and her class and her wealth do you and also like owns them I mean, right. So it is, that's part of where the problem comes in is like it, there are anti-capitalist messages in this, mm-hmm. in this book, but at the end it's, it's a bit, um, I don't know, maybe like the then equivalent of neoliberalism yeah. where you just want to sweep the, totally. the not cool parts under the rug and not talk about them yeah. and then outwardly be very like, mm-hmm. Oh, like, you know, that's, that's not part of, you know, we don't have that nasty stuff going on, but in truth, like the markers are all still there pointing to the fact that yes, this yeah. is still a thing. 
And to be clear, this is a fantasy book for children written in 1946. So like, obviously we're approaching it with a very critical eye. But um, I do think that it succeeds in ways that I did not expect. Like you were saying, it is way more progressive than I would have thought it would be. Um, And that there are some really cool messages within for both you know, for all children who read it and for adults who read it too. And on its face, it is just a massively comforting embrace of a book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I was so swept away by it and I want to have my own little tower room with starry silver curtains Mm -hmm. and a little box that has sugar biscuits in it for when I need a snack. Oh my gosh. Yes. And my little pony that I can ride through the woods with my lion, my yeah, hair, yeah. and my dog running alongside me. Yeah. Um, there, there's just no end to the wonderful, wonderful little morsels of comfort. Yeah. So I do want to read um, excerpts of the messages that two of the listeners who requested this so wonderfully um, emailed in because they're just way funnier than anything we could say ourselves. Um, Okay, so from Clarissa. The Little White Horse, fantastic pretend food, but originally published in 1946, so there is an old-fashioned sensibility that is not as feminist as we expect now. In fact, the female characters are constantly being bashed for being curious, especially by a male character who goes around listening at keyholes, which yes. seems to be fine if a man does it. So yeah, that that speaks to like what we were talking about, where it's like, is this a little tongue-in-cheek? Where yeah. like, because this is so clearly obvious, and it's a book for kids. Exactly. Yeah. And then from Hannah, this was perfect because it's kind of the flip side of this argument that we've been puzzling through about the treatment of women in the book. Um, Upon rereading as an adult, it is surprisingly feminist for a book written in the 1940s with the phrase mere men making a common comical appearance. I was obsessed with this book as a little girl. The animal friends are so great. I must note that the protagonist is fairly irritating to me now. (laughs) There is also a religious theme in the sidelines, which I know would bother Madeline. (laughs) And there are also many, many weddings at the end. Thank you so much, Clarissa and Hannah. I'm, I hope it's okay that I read those excerpts from your emails. Yeah, thank um, you to both of you. Those are great. But yeah, that's another piece that we have talked about in our episodes before where we do not like a wedding <laughs> at the end of a book. And I thought it was so funny that we literally get a wedding for every age group at the end of this yes. book. There's like the, uh, you know, young lovers, very young, <laughs> too young. I'm not saying it's okay, but but that's the, you know, general genre that going on with Maria and Robin's wedding. Then there are the, you know, middle-aged but finding their young love again individuals mm-hmm. with Benjamin and Love Day. And then there's, you know, we've spent our lives, we've been alone, like we've followed these other pursuits and thought that that was it, but yeah. then realized that there was still a chance yeah. <laughs> for the Parson and Miss Heliotrope. <laughs> Yeah, I also like <laughs> had this weird moment where I was like, "Are two of the animals gonna get married?" <laughs> just me. it's like a Noah's Ark type of wedding deal at the end, yeah. where it's just like two of every kind. Zachariah and Wiggins <laughs> coming together. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> a male cat and a male dog. I like it. <laughs> Zachariah the cat. I and okay, I'm ready. Okay, no, no. 
But let's, yeah, so let's talk just a little bit more about the religion present okay. um, before we move on to our other segments. What what kind of religious doctrine did she ascribe to? Christian. And like Christianity. Non-denominational or like what? I was just curious because they talked about the lady who I mm-hmm. assume has to be the Virgin Mary, but the way that they presented the lady in the book, it sounds like some like mystical lady of the forest. Um, which like there's definitely room for in the Mary tradition to mm-hmm. like turn her into more of a pagan deity. Um, but I don't think she ever mentioned Jesus. Do no. you think that, why do you think she did that? Um, am I reading too much? No, into it? I, I agree with you. I think it is more of a general godliness in nature, mm-hmm. um, which is very pagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also incorporating different sort of fantasy themes in a religious feeling way, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like I felt that the access to the sublime in this book was very much through brushes with God, Mm -hmm. but those brushes with God were approached in a much like broader way Mm -hmm. than you often see in a book that has really specific Christian influences. Right. Um, In a book where like we're going to church and listening to a sermon. Um, But we're also seeing like beautiful white horses ride out of the sea and through the forest. Um, And there are like characters visiting each other physically through dreams. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the, the magic system inherent in the book I felt was a theological one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it was, done in a way that I could appreciate and that didn't feel excessive. Um, yeah, yeah. The book does feel like a little smug at times. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely. Especially when, you know, Maria's being like, oh, well, I'll just, instead of being afraid, I'll, I just won't be afraid. Instead of being bad, I'll just be good. Instead of arguing, I'll just be sweet. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like, okay, like, Maria. Trust me, it is not that easy, Maria. But you know, she's been Take it from someone a lot older than you. (laughs) You don't want to be sweet, okay? (laughs) Thank you. It's my um, Roz from Monsters, Inc. voice. Perfect. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I do want to make sure that she is following her own agency as opposed to feeling like she's doing the good thing or the right thing but Mm -hmm. she does gain happiness from all that she does and she clearly had a love for Robin before he like very rudely at lunch is like you have to marry me yeah no (laughs) I was I was very glad that um, the author did a good job of developing their relationship outside of that because otherwise it would have been like a, a Lord Farquaad situation mm-hmm. when he just suddenly is like, you have to marry me. <laughs> uh, one note I did want to mention, this book was the recipient of the annual Carnegie Medal, um, recognizing the year's best children's book by a British subject, which is like a big deal, right? Uh, yeah, and she also said that it was one of her personal favorites among her works. Um, which I understand, I think this is a shining, yeah, shining bell of a book, just like the bell ringing out from the from Paradise Hill. (laughs) God, I just I really want to go to England now, yeah. 
Madeline sent me a picture of some pink geraniums and then I looked up Cornwall geraniums because um, Love Day had been talking about how beautiful they were there. Um, And uh, there's just some gorgeous stuff. I found a cottage that is available to rent that's called the Geranium Cottage. Yeah. Uh, Just beautiful, beautiful places out there. And one day we will all be able to travel again. This book gave me serious Oversea Understone vibes as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. um, For many different reasons. So, yeah, if if you want to take a mental holiday, definitely revisit The Little White Unicorn and then Oversea Understone. Those would be my first two. A, a, a lovely English holiday, I should say. I found this book so easy to read too that I literally read it instead of doing an audiobook. Like I stopped even looking for mm-hmm. an audiobook because I was just like, yeah, I can like I can read this. And usually I find it really hard to concentrate when I read um novels mm-hmm. in actual written form. But it's it's a very, very lovely book. Shall we discuss animals? Animals. animals. Okay. Rolf is not a dog, but a lion. And he just like I was trying to figure out what he was the whole time. And when they said lion, I was like, what? I was sure wolf. I thought he was just like a Newfoundland. I I was thinking he was like some sort of um yeah, I don't know, big wolf. Big shaggy wolf. I'm not sure. Well, we're both wrong. How do you mistake a lion for a dog? Right. That makes me That's worry about these question. people a little bit. <laughs> like, guys, are, are y'all paying attention? I don't know. Maybe they've never seen a lion before. Like, it was a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> Not a lot of lions in England. Mm, that's fair. In southwestern England. Um, so, yeah, tough to say. But uh, Rolf is a um, the sort of creature that you want by your side yeah. at all times. Um, you can ride on top of him. He will keep you safe in the forest. Yeah, like she doesn't have to be afraid of every of anything when she has him with her. I really appreciate that it's explained at the beginning of the book that Maria will be allowed to explore on her own, which yes. is the only way that a lot of the plot is going to be able to move right, forward. Because but, she has to figure it out. Yeah, because Rolf will be with her and then and her pony periwinkle um whose other name is joy of the ground which is wonderful which i love because maria exclaims it at one point she's like yes joy of the ground you've done it which i really love i mean i guess you'd say to a bird like joy of the sky it's just the ground is a lot less exciting than the sky so Mm -hmm. that's like and then we also have serena who is a a hare hare that maria saves from a trap that the poachers have set in the forest and hares are said to have royal blood. And I was a little disturbed that uh, Sir Benjamin said, no, the only way I eat them is jugged in port wine because that befits them. And it's like, if you feel weird about eating an animal, maybe you maybe shouldn't just, just put it in it port. At all. <laughs> maybe you should just avoid it. Yeah. Um, then, then we have Zachariah, who is the kitchen cat and or, you know, general... Uh, house demon I I mean demon in a friendly way (laughs) this is one of the things that I used my kindle book to try to note um is that how many times people just say uh like 
it is Zachariah or yeah. Zachariah told me Zachariah told me <laughs> or Zachariah let me in or Zachariah gave this to me. It's like he's the hardest working one at the state there and Marmaduke Scarlet works hard. There are so many short senses that are just like ex- saying, you know, like Zachariah did it or something like that. It is really funny if you pay attention to them because it's just so like, oh, well, of course. <laughs> he uses hieroglyphics to leave to messages. Communicate. <laughs> that was wild. I, I mean, it's very English to, to have the like, quote unquote, exotic thing, like bring the magic of like the ancient Egyptians, mm-hmm. you know, like... <laughs> And I, it must be said that my favorite animal in this book is Wiggins. Yes, um, Wiggins. Who has one of the best introductions I feel like I've ever seen in a children's fantasy book, much less for a dog. I think that's why I thought he was a cat, because he's talked about like a cat. This is why I thought he was a human, <laughs> because of the line. Okay. Oh, No. Literally, she refers to him as part of humanity. Okay. So they're in the carriage, all feeling uncomfortable, heading out to the valley. um, And there's a lurch. And then the passage says, Maria gazed at her boots. Miss Heliotrope restored her spectacles to their proper position, picked up the Warren Brown volume of French essays from the floor, popped a peppermint into her mouth, and peered once more in the dim light at the wiggly black print on the yellow page. Okay, so two people doing human things. Then, Wiggins, meanwhile, pursued with his tongue the taste of the long-digested dinner that still lingered among his whiskers. And then we get this sentence. Humanity can be roughly divided into three sorts of people— those who find comfort in literature, those who find comfort in personal adornment, and those who find comfort in food. And Miss Heliotrope, Maria, and Wiggins were typical representatives of their own sort of people. <laughs> Literally a person. So she does, yeah. She does talk to, about him as if he's a person, like, right away. And then we get this fascinating look at how everyone loves Wiggins and thinks he's amazing because he is so beautiful. But Wiggins is actually the worst. But he's horrible. <laughs> On the inside, he is a horrible person Which dog. so great. This, okay, I need to read this line. So we get a description of Maria and Miss Heliotrope. Then, but it is difficult to draw up a list of Wiggins' virtues. In fact, impossible because he hadn't any. Wiggins was greedy, conceited, bad-tempered, selfish, and lazy. It was the belief of Maria and Miss Heliotrope that he loved them devotedly because he always kept close at their heels, wagged his tail politely when spoken to, and even kissed them upon occasion. But all this Wiggins did, not from affection, but because he thought it good policy. And then goes on to say that he knows from talking to other dogs that he has good owners, so he wants to stay on their good side. I love this so much. I love this spoiled, awful little dog who just tricks everyone into lavishing treats and gifts upon him because he is gorgeous. He also eats like a a literal pig. Like he eats everything. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about this in just a moment, but he gets the same meals that the humans get. And it's it's explained as just being like he had strong digestion <laughs> unlike Ms. Heliotrope or something. Be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin refers to him as a good trenchman at one point yes. because of his appetite. Because yes. he's eating a bowl of stew and he licks so hard that a carrot lands on Rolf's nose. I mean, he's just 
magnificent a dog funny. after my own heart and so Pretty yeah I, I give my yeah wiggins gets my <laughs> bad ass sleep <laughs> pretend food pretend food this book is so outrageous. Oh my gosh. <laughs> to the food. I couldn't stop thinking about Grace the whole time. Totally makes sense that it was written during World War II. Um, oh, right. There is such a need to have not just delicious food, but to have too much delicious right. food. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned, not a meal is forgotten. We we get breakfast. We get supper. We get dinner. We get after dinner snacks. We get teas. We get picnics. Literally every place you could eat food and every time that you could eat food yeah. is observed. That's true. Thank yeah. you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my gosh. And I can understand why so many listeners have thought that we would enjoy this. Yeah, they were correct. Um, so I also got to learn about a few different foods that maybe were popular in the 1840s what is in the United sip, Kingdom. Sip, 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 syllabub. Yeah, I knew you'd get there. <laughs> so syllabub was actually in the borrowers as well. Oh, um, okay. And it is a frothy, like curdled drink. Mm. Um, I remember your reaction to it when we <laughs> discussed it. <laughs> When we discussed it then, and now it has returned. Um, yeah, it's, remember, it's like a whipped cream drink, and it's usually flavored with wine or sherry and lemon, which makes it curdle slightly. It's disgusting. <laughs> I would take back what I was, any was warm feeling from the 16th to 19th centuries. Hey, yeah. if anyone listening has ever eaten that, um, hit us up. I'm really curious, but I'm not going to try it myself. Yeah, let no, us know. I know that it can now be the name for a different type of dessert. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm not really sure what that's like either. I do need to give a shout out to Miss Heliotrope, who's trapped in this book filled with sumptuous feasts and has mm. horrible indigestion. I, what a nightmare. Shout out to Miss Heliotrope. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of GI issues in our family bloodline, and um, I feel her. If you listened to our, was that our Dragon Rider episode? Where we just complained about our stomach like, problems well, we can't for a eat. good 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. If, if you've listened to that episode, you're well well familiar. Um, although based on the analytics, I think a lot of people are stopping listening to the episode <laughs> once they get to that part, which I completely You don't want to hear about my indigestion and my food intolerances? I completely get it. I don't want to hear about it either. And yep, it's but. in my body. Um, yeah, Miss Heliotrope's in the wrong book. Although I do have to say that at the end, when her heartbreak is cured and she's reunited with her long lost lover, her mm. indigestion goes away. Yeah. So I guess that's something to try. My mom always tells me that her indigestion went away when she started becoming a vegetarian, but I've been a vegetarian for some time now. And uh, when does it happen, Mom? <laughs> mom. <laughs> I also appreciated that Marmaduke Scarlet pays such close attention by listening through keyholes all the time and peeping on Miss Heliotrope, it seems. Uh, I mean, I don't appreciate that he does that. I appreciate that he picks up that she has indigestion. So he always makes just calmer, milder versions yeah. of foods that everyone else is enjoying for her to have. I really yeah. love that. I That's mean, another weird thing about him is that he's so like kind and loving and he says the dumbest stuff. 
Okay, I'm just going to list some, I'm just going to read some foods that are, that are consumed in this book. Parkin, I didn't know what that was. Um, it's a gingerbread cake, traditionally made with oatmeal and black treacle, mm. originated in Northern England. That sounds really good. A chopped greens and baked potatoes that had been meant for Miss Heliotropa, which Wiggins ate. A blue wooden box filled with dainty biscuits with sugar flowers on them. A lot which, of good biscuits. <laughs> which were in Maria's room. Yeah. Homemade crusty bread, hot onion soup, delicious rabbit stew, baked apples in a silver dish, honey, butter the color of marigolds, the butter work in this book. <laughs> My God. This book made me want to eat butter. <laughs> like, because it talks about, you know. I've been having a lot of bread and cheese over the last mm. 24 hours, which also, yeah, is exactly what I've been driven to. I was raised on, our, our mom always bought like good bread and good cheese and good butter, but it was only within the last couple of years that I realized what a huge difference it makes when you have good butter versus bad butter, especially like when you're cooking mm-hmm. and you're baking. Mm-hmm. And it got to get that Irish butter. Yeah. The butter in this book sounds incredible. It really does. Yeah. That's, that's all. A big blue jug of warm mulled claret, hot roasted chestnuts folded in a napkin, a huge home cured ham, brown boiled eggs, coffee, Tea, more honey, cream, new baked bread. The cream has a thick yellow crust on it. Freshly churned butter. Milk so new it's warm and frothing. Even Miss Heliotrope, encouraged by the freedom from nightmare, ventured on a brown boiled egg. (laughs) (laughs) Big blue bowl full of eggs. Blue jug of cream. Yeah. Um, Twelve eggs in the syllabub. A pint of cream and cinnamon. My, my, my. So kids would eat the syllabub? Yeah. Huh. What does sherry taste like? Is that just like sweet wine? It's, yeah, it's like fortified sweet wine, basically. Okay. And okay. I think only a little goes in okay. um, for curdling and flavoring. Well, I mean, wine can be really sweet. So, I mean, I for guess sure. that makes more sense to me that a kid would want to eat it if it was like sweet wine. Pink iced fairy cakes, a foaming mug of milk, small silver dish full of candied cherries, mm. tea with bread and butter, honey and cream, and golden brown parkin. There's the parkin. Pork chops and onions, baked apples, custard. Custard. <laughs> custard. <laughs> roast beef, gravy, Yorkshire pudding, roast potatoes, greens, horseradish sauce, apple tart, sugar, cream, cheese, plum cake, and beer. <laughs> That's what oh puts gosh. Sir Benjamin to rights again after he gets irritated. Ugh, that would put me to rights too. <laughs> Ham sandwiches, jam sandwiches, sausage rolls, apple turnovers, gingerbread, saffron cake, sugar biscuits, radishes, a small crystal bottle of milk. That is the picnic. <laughs> Marmaduke packs. Scarlet, Marmaduke Scarlet. It's weird to just call him Marmaduke. Yep. <laughs> just think of the dog. Or Scarlet. And then I'm going to finish with first the tea that they have to bring everyone together and make them fall in love. Plum cake, saffron cake, cherry cake, iced fairy cakes, eclairs, gingerbread, meringues, syllabub, almond fingers, rock cakes, chocolate drops, parkin, cream horns, Devonshire splits, Cornish pasty, jam sandwiches, lemon curd sandwiches, lettuce sandwiches, cinnamon toast, and honey toast. Surprised that lettuce made it in there. Well, you got to put a vegetable in there, Grace, or you're going to die. <laughs> we'll all have gout long before the Scurvy. end of the book, which is definitely coming. Yeah. And then the wedding cake for the baby wedding, which takes place. 
The white iced wedding cake was the size of a cartwheel at its base and was six feet tall, mounting up like a pyramid. It was decorated with sugar flowers and fruit and birds and stars and butterflies and bells. And at the very top, there was a tiny sickle moon and a tiny sun enclosed within a silver horseshoe. Ugh. Love it. And then my last quote is not specifically mentioning food, but it is this exchange. You must give me your word, sir, said Maria, that you will not keep the money for yourself anymore, but will give it to the poor. My income will be considerably depleted. <laughs> I know. I love it. He's just be like, uh, okay, said Sir Benjamin in rather dry tones. You could eat less, suggested Maria helpfully. <laughs> oh, right. Straight to the heart. Little kid telling you, like, if you want to be less fat, you should eat less. Be like, oh, screw you, child. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. But, yep, an exchange that I enjoyed. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything better that I could do than just list all the foods. I also wanted to do that experiment to see how many times I said cream, butter, and milk, which (laughs) were quite a few. Um, But I think those were all of the meals that they consumed um, throughout the book. Good show. Uh, With, with, yeah, I left out like a couple little snacks, but there's just so much. Listener Clarissa also sent us a link to an amazing project that a group of very cool folks who I want to be friends with did. (laughs) Um, It's from this blog called Cook the Books, Mm. and they did a Cook the Books roundup for the Little White Horse, um, where each person made their own like little feast. Um, Mm. And there's so many gorgeous dishes here. There's ginger cake. There's Turkish Delight Syllabub, Princess Biscuits that are pink iced heart biscuits, um, strawberry sponge cakes, um, Parkin, fairy cakes. There's a crumble. There's pink yogurt. It's it's amazing. And I will put it up on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com for everyone to enjoy. Sounds incredible. It's the kind of project that we need to start, and it's still active. Dang. And this post is from 2009. We do need to start something like that. We do. So thank you, Cook the Books. Okay. Anything else you want to say about food? I don't think so. That was very, very comprehensive. I'm hungry. Yeah, I'm starving. That's my conclusion for that, and I'm going to go eat... A bowl of butter, I guess. I just, just butter. I think that's it. Just butter. So let's wrap things up with our badass lady meter. Um, we've already conversed at length on the way women are treated in this book and where it's a little bit strange, but I did appreciate it overall. Yeah. Um, especially taking the both the setting of the book and then when it was actually written into account, yes. both of which are many, many, many years yeah. ago. My badass woman is Ms. Heliotrope. Uh, and I rate her. <laughs> you don't know how to be nice to Miss Celia. No, no. I mean, she is a, she does everything. She, I rate her a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a, a scholar. A, yeah. An academic, um, a, comforting, warm, loving presence, literally everything. I rate her everything. She carries the family team. Uh, She's always done it for Maria and she taught herself to love Maria 
because at first she didn't and was like, okay, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to do an amazing job. And uh, then (laughs) she and Maria became each other's like partners. Yeah. So I really love that. I agree. Miss Heliotrope is really cool. I was disappointed that we didn't get more of her later on in yeah, the book. Yeah, she kind as of soon as Maria becomes independent, Miss Heliotrope's just like, well, I'll just mend all the curtains forever. Yeah, but you know, it seems like that's a hobby of hers. Yeah, it, so. it does seem to bring her yeah. bring her satisfaction. My baddest lady is Love Day Minette. Mm. Um, she lives in a cave to hide from her scorned lover. To hide from her ex. <laughs> Dig it. <laughs> Let's people through a tunnel when Dig they need it. to enter the valley. Um, has a lovely child who she has clearly done a great job raising. Um, and she's just had a life. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that she would not put up with the truly absurd request that the flowers of her youth and her home, which she cannot return to, uh, not be allowed in her, in her future house. Yeah. I side with her. Like I side with, I I fully think she was in the right. And yeah, it's a silly fight, but Benjamin chose his mom over her Mm -hmm. and did it again and again and had no recourse or understanding of like, okay, if this is my, and maybe things worked a little bit differently. I know the term partner wasn't necessarily used for a husband and wife because they weren't in a partnership. The but wife I feel was, like the, it still recognizes that in the book itself. It's true. Like, I know. That's the thing. Like Benjamin really messed up, in my opinion. And he recognizes it yeah. and does apologize And I guess for he's him. the one who's cursed, so it makes sense that it would be yeah. him who messes up the most catastrophically. Yeah, yeah totally. like flips out and like hulks out. And Throws all the flowers yeah, out of the house. Right, exactly. And I, I yeah. <laughs> It's ridiculous. So I am fully, fully team love day and I appreciate the way she goes about her life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she's pretty cool. Yeah. And she sneaks into the estate to leave outfits and, um, for Maria and make her feel comforted and let her know what she's supposed to do with her day. Yeah, she's clearly like, I mean, she's supposed to be a bit of a fairy, right? Yeah, because sure. like her like sneaking into the house to, that was wild when I realized it was her sneaking into the house where she like was going to marry a I know. Benjamin. I was like, whoa. You're revisiting <laughs> that site of young trauma yeah, like over and over Weird. Again. Yeah, and that's that was one of the more like magical realism parts yeah. too of like, oh, And she's okay. a moon maiden it's a fairy as well, tale. so she fits True. into that sort of group of she is a moon maiden secretive moon ladies Mm -hmm. um and my rating for her is um i'm gonna i'm gonna give her an automated gate for the tunnel so that she doesn't just have to be trapped there opening it whenever anybody wants to enter through the stone you're actually gifting her something i'm giving it to her that's that's really nice yeah yeah she needs it also who's gonna be the um what do they call the portress The portress. It doesn't seem like that <laughs> difficult of a job. Like, I, but that's something that requires constant attention. Yeah, but you know, there's a lot of people in the village. 
Okay. <laughs> they'll, they'll get someone to do it. <laughs> okay. And, you know, we didn't we didn't discuss Maria at length uh, because she is like a little bit of an annoying character, as we mentioned. She's 13. But she's a, yeah, she's a young girl. She's doing her best. I, I am, as always, impressed by her resilience. Like, she's orphaned. Mm-hmm. She goes out to live in the country, but she approaches it with such a positive attitude. She's very resilient. Everyone she meets, she's like, yes, new friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's definitely an attitude that I could do with a little more of, but it isn't something that I do recognize in myself. So maybe that's why it didn't relate to her very well. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't dislike her. I just like, I wasn't as excited by her as by some of the other women in the book. But again, I didn't, I actually, I did like her. Like it's more than just disliking, not disliking her. Me too. And I appreciate that she kind of found a good middle ground between being, as the men tell her, overly curious and still managing to like learn things and find things out. Yes. And she's always like doing her best to push the limits Mm -hmm. of what she is allowed to do. Um, But like stay quote unquote good at the same time. And there's like a natural deviousness to her. Yes. That I do like. Like. But it does show itself and that that's what I really liked about Maria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what's up with us lately, but our episodes have all been so long. So if you because we were isolated and lonely and we have so much to talk about. <laughs> so thank you if you've made it this far for listening. We truly appreciate you. And thank you again, Hannah, Clarissa, and anyone else who has mentioned the little white horse in a tweet, Instagram post, comment, yeah. wherever. Yeah. Thank um, you for bringing us in on this one that we did not know about. Yeah. And it was so lovely. Yeah. Great, great experience and something I really needed. Yeah. Um, so thank you. We will now announce the next book that we are going to be covering. It is Charmed Life by Diana Wynne-Jones. Diana Wynne-Jones. The cry. <laughs> the DWJ call. Um, the first Crestomancy book. We previously covered Witch Week pretty early on in the podcast because that was one of my all-time favorite books um, when I was young. And now we're like going back and do it the right way by starting at the beginning of the series. Um, so all y'all who love her as much as we do will hopefully be pleased. Hey. You can find us on the internet at dragonbabiespodcast.com, on Twitter at dragonbabiespod, on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and you can email us at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com. Do it. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye. Nay.